My name's John Tyson, and I choose truth over tribe. Are you tired of tribalism? I think a lot of what the left supports is satanic. The only time religious freedom is invoked is in the name of bigotry and discrimination. Are you exhausted by the culture war? If they don't like it here, they can leave. You could put half of Trump supporters into what I call the basket of deplorables. Are you suspicious of those who say Jesus endorses their political party? Is it possible to be a good Christian and also be a member of the Republican Party? And the answer is absolutely not. From certainly a biblical standpoint, Christians could not vote Democratic. We trust the lamb, not the donkey or the elephant. This is the podcast that's too liberal for conservatives and too conservative for liberals. I'm Patrick Miller. And I'm Keith Simon. And we choose truth over tribe. Do you? I hate carnivals. And I hope you do too. Now, I might be saying that because I remember going inside of one of those funhouse mirror buildings as a kid and having a horrifying experience. Yes, more horrifying than the weekend's super boring Super Bowl funhouse mirror segment from the last Super Bowl. You see, I, I got lost, and it's really easy to get lost inside of these mirror houses, but it's terrifying too because the mirrors are shaped to change your bodily proportions. You can be a thin, spindly giant. You can be an hourglass model, a squat dwarf. You can be anything but you. Sometimes it seems as though the American church is lost in a mirror funhouse. And after decades inside the funhouse, it's forgotten what it actually looks like. To some of us, it's this spindly giant of Fox News-loving right-wing conservatism. Uh, To others, it's the squat, angry dwarf of the left. To others, it's just an hourglass model where you can go nom on some entertainment when you're done with Hulu. But let's go ahead and push my extended metaphor one step further. Because the mirrors in this fun house that the church is in, they're not made by God. The church was made by God, but the mirrors around it, those are made by culture, by media, by publishers, by social. And the church is constantly buying into the version of itself that this or that cultural identity group reflects. In other words, we're in desperate need of finding ourselves for who we really are with all the true beauty that God has given us as his church. We are in a desperate place and we need to resist. We need to resist the cultural, political, and secular narratives that misshape us into these faintly human monsters. John Tyson is a pastor and cultural commentator from Australia. He moved to New York City to rebuild the broken church in the West. And he's forming a community of people who seek not only to have their minds renewed, but also their bodies, their disciplines, and their practices have all of those things renewed by God's Spirit. Why? So that they, so that we can resist, so that we can become the beautiful bride of Christ that God made us to be. He's written countless books on this topic, but in this interview, we are focused on his book, Beautiful Resistance, and I think you're going to learn a lot. So thanks for being on the show. No worries, mate. I'm looking forward to the conversation. Great. Well, I I, want to start with this. I'm sure a lot of people have read your books and leveled this critique at you. You you suggest that resting is part of what we need to do. We we need to have Sabbath. We need to have prayer. We need to have fasting. And I have to imagine some people say that is super unrealistic. You know, it's nice for you and your pastorly ivory tower to rearrange your life (laughs) so you can have these practices, but that's not realistic for everyday people. It's too intense. So how do you respond to that? 
Well, number one, um, the kingdom of God is not defined by what is realistic. So, number one, we have to have a theologically informed vision of how to live. We get that most clearly from the person of Jesus. And it seems that Jesus had a rhythm of engagement and disengagement. So, it's, you know, Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. And Jesus is always seeming to sneak away from even his disciples to be with the Father mm. and to regain rest. Jesus practiced the Sabbath, obviously, in first century Judaism. That was a part of what he did. Um, I do take a touch of offense that in my ivory pastoral world, I'd trade, I would trade pastoring through a pandemic in Manhattan with anybody except those in the medical field. <laughs> so it was like, yes, it is, you know, I mean, New York is a hard place. People charge fast. And yeah. my whole point is um, it's countercultural. It's yeah. countercultural to do it. So uh, Leslie Newbegin said, we must live in the kingdom of God in such a way that it provokes questions for which the gospel is the answer. Resting is one of those things that makes people say, how do you even do that? The other thing I would say is people are often, in many ways, um, very undisciplined with their time. You know, and the task exp expands to fill the available time. And Sabbath is one of those gifts that puts a hard boundary and it makes you definitely more intentional with your time. So if you're like, oh, okay, I actually have to shut this thing down. I can't actually dilly-dally. I've got to focus. I've got to get on it. And some people say, well, what do you do if something comes up? You know, for the Jewish community, the category of violation of the Sabbath is if it's in the interest of saving life. So if you're doing something that is like genuinely pivotal mm. for the well-being of others, it's okay to like skip out on it. But that's the category, not like I didn't use my time well enough or whatever it is. So I, it's meant to be, it's a gift. Jesus is like, why are you fighting me on this? This is a gift for you. <laughs> you know? so, so obviously New York City is, is known as a city that's urgent, high speed. Are, are people in your congregations practicing these things actively? 100%. Hmm. Yes, I mean, yeah, people find ways. I mean, New Yorkers do everything hard. So if you give them a, a vision of rest, they will rest hard. You know, they will rest well. <laughs> so, yeah, there's a lot of folks. I mean, you know, it's a, definitely a part of our staff rhythm. So it's modeled in how we set programs and activities, even for people to be able to participate in the life of our church. And then I think it's, yeah, it's, it's definitely a framework that we've taught on regularly that people take seriously. So, yeah, I mean, does everybody? I mean, Jesus didn't get everybody to do what he wanted, yeah. but we certainly have a strong culture where it's, it's present and valued. What, what would you say to someone who says, look, I've got three kids, we've got sporting events, we've got uh, two parents that are working, daycare, pickup, drop-off, all of those things. I mean, I, I barely can make it to church on Sunday. How am I supposed to take a day of rest? How am I supposed to, I mean, fasting, that just sounds like crazy unless I'm trying to lose weight. Where do you start? Well, number one, you start by realizing you're saved by grace. You know, so you can be incredibly disciplined. You can use your time in, in incredibly good ways. But if it's not done out of the grace of God, for the glory of God, it just works. Um, but what it sounds like is it sounds like you've chosen a lifestyle that is killing you. And you probably need to rethink your entire life. So it's like if you don't have time to rest, you don't have time to live properly. Like you need a larger conversation with all of the factors that are promoting such busyness. Like so what, what is it about kids' sports on the weekends that is so vital? No, I think you're making a really great point right now, which is we, we, we should renegotiate uh, some of the things that we have sitting on the table. Yeah, and I'm, I'm like a huge proponent of just, you know, I'm big in a spiritual formation, which is like who am I becoming by what I'm doing? And I always just ask myself, like, what is this kind of lifestyle doing to me? Who is it making me? 
Is it making the fruit of the Spirit more evident in my life? Am I more available in love to God and neighbor? Am I a better parent? Am I teaching my kids the values of the kingdom of God or values of a busy suburban American life? And then I'm going to start, once I get a vision of the kind of person I'm supposed to be, I'm going to start then thinking about what practices mm. form me into the person I want to be. And then if anything gets in the way, I will try and like deal with those or change those. And, and sometimes when you're overhauling your life, some people need just like cold turkey, like they need radical change. <laughs> And other people's need, like, they need grace. They need to be able to wean off it uh, in a way that's healthy. But if we have all the same lifestyles, values, and practices of the typical American, we are not following Jesus well. Mm -hmm. It's just impossible. Yeah. You're, you're making me think about uh, Michael Collins, famous author, wrote Moneyball, a number of other books. And his daughter recently, I think she was 19, she tragically died. And um, he's not religious. He doesn't follow Jesus. Uh, but he was talking about her passion and her love for sports. And he said that her being on the sports field, that was her church. That was the closest thing that she ever experienced to, to church and transcendence. And obviously, you know, my heart was breaking for him. I have a daughter. I can't imagine what that's like. But then I just started thinking about uh, myself about all of the other Christians I know. And I thought, is this the closest thing to church that my kids are going to experience? Is this going to be uh, their uh, walk with transcendence? Is it all going to happen on the sports field or will it actually happen in the church? Will they really know Jesus? And it connects what you're saying about what forms us, what shapes us. Yeah. I mean, look, I'm not against sports. I think sports are great. My kids played sports, mm -hmm. you know, like sports in place can be very formative in a helpful way. But I think that, you know, part of the challenge is, is when they just take over our life. So <laughs> the Chihuahua's here. <laughs> okay, really quick for our listeners. Uh, right now, John has a, a morning Chihuahua in place. Can you just tell us what's happened in the Chihuahua's life recently? Your life as well, obviously. Yeah, so we did the worst. So we used to have a French bulldog, an amazing dog named Bruiser. And when my kids were on vacation, it was hit and killed. It got off the leash. It was hit and killed oh. in front of them. And so what parents should do is like, you know, mourn the loss and give time to process. What you don't do is bury the pain and replace the loss. And what we did was bury the pain and replace the <laughs> loss. And the next day, next day went to the thing and got this dog named Pixie. So Pixie for 11 years has basically been weaned and fed by my daughter. And my daughter went to college this past weekend. Oh. And this dog is like just in mourning. So anyway, she's sitting right next to me. And I just <laughs> feed her little doggy treats and every now and then she barks when someone walks by. Real, real time, real life. <laughs> well, we, we, we welcome her presence on the show. It's, it's good to meet Pixie. You know, in, in your book, as we're talking about discipline and the need to uh, think through what our, our life looks like and what's forming us, I'm, I'm brought to a story that you tell in your book, Beautiful Resistance, uh, about Dietrich Bonhoeffer and his friend, uh, Wilhelm Niesel. I'm not sure if that's how you say it. Uh, but it's a story of him visiting uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer's underground seminary during the rise of the Third Reich in Germany. And so, so maybe you can share what, what was Bonhoeffer doing? Uh, why was Niesel suspicious? And what did he show him? Well, yeah, that, I mean, that was a very moving scene. And it was one of those scenes like, you know, you feel like you've read and heard everything about Bonhoeffer. And I was reading it's, it's a, a Strange Glory. Uh, by, I think it's Charles Marsh, and uh, the, on the life of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And fascinating biography. And in it, he tells a scene where uh, the pressure is starting to mount. People are starting to wake up and realize, okay, look, the church is, there's complete capitulation with the Third Reich here. Hitler is demanding the loyalty that belongs to Jesus. And so people are like, what do we do? And uh, so 
he is given the, the opportunity to run an underground seminary, and it was in a place called Finkenfold, which is now in Poland. And um, he had, had a place that was, like, donated to them. And he basically set up, like, a school of resistance. It was, like, theological, it was cultural, it was communal. And uh, one of his former friends who had heard him lecture before heard about what he was doing. I think he'd actually read an early manuscript of Life Together that was floating around, and he was just kind of like, are you kidding? This is crazy. It's too much. So he, he comes out and visits him to see what's going on. And uh, he comes to this place and they're, you know, they're doing this common life. And it is, he wrote Cost of Discipleship and Life Together um, based on uh, his experiments there. Gets in a boat and Bonhoeffer rows him across the Oder Sound, which is this, this body of water. And they go up a hill to where Hitler has an airport that is training troops. And there's troops being trained and there's planes taking off. And he basically makes this case to his friend. It's like he basically stands there and he says, like, look at what Hitler is doing to form the German people. Mm. And then you look at me in my seminary and you think that what I'm doing is too intense. He's like, until our intensity matches the intensity of what Hitler's doing, we're never going to win the formation game. And you can read the actual quote in my book, but in essence, I did a whole sermon series based on this, which is, this must be stronger than that. And, and Bonhoeffer's basically saying this, thinking what, what we're doing has to be stronger than the formation of the Third Reich. And they get back in the boat and they row back in silence. You know, I love that posture of Bonhoeffer standing on a hill contrasting the Reich versus discipleship and saying, don't apologize for radical discipleship because our discipleship has to be stronger than the formation of the world. And we don't have a Hitler or a Third Reich today, but I'll tell you, much of how our culture forms us is probably, certainly ideologically as strong, but in terms of practices, it is definitely as strong. Mm. Yeah, and obviously most of the German church did compromise with Nazism. I'll never forget seeing this uh, really sobering picture. I don't know if you've seen it. It's an altar in a church, and there's a Bible on top of the altar, and above it is a crucifix of Jesus. Uh, But the altar itself has a Nazi flag draped over the top of it. And so here, I mean, it's, it's a striking image, right? You've, you've got Jesus, a Jewish man, crucified by the Roman state, hovering over the flag of a fascist state that's about to execute six million Jews. And when I saw it, of course, there's part of me that was just appalled, but then I started thinking, what's the equivalent picture for the church in the West? I mean, like you said, we're, it's, we're not the Third Reich, uh, and yet I, I keep asking the question, what are the ways in, in America and in the West that we're compromising the gospel right now? Well, there's, I mean, there's, there's probably a lot. I think the one we don't talk about that I think motivates is like the root behind a lot of other things is, is the spirit of mammon. Mm. And it's not capitalism. I think capitalism is the best human form of economics. Okay, so like, you know, a lot of the data shows like capitalism's done more to raise people out of poverty than aid. So I'm not a capitalist. Um, I'm a communalist, which is like voluntary redistribution as opposed to communism based on generosity. But in terms of like an economic model that works in society, that is thoroughly, thoroughly inhabited by the spirit of mammon. And mammon, when you study it in the Bible, is a, it's, mammon is very sophisticated. It is like, it's, it's a life of independent luxury. It's that desire, it's like, it's the, the, probably the, the most common image I can think of is like, it's that Instagram worthy vacation. 
It's that Instagram-worthy outfit where someone else has it and you don't have it and they'll sell it to you. But you look at it and you're just like, dang, that's the life. That's what mammon is. So it's not money as such. It's everything attached to money that produces luxury without concern for others and independence from God. Oh, that's interesting. I've never heard someone define mammon that way. Yeah, and to me, that's like that is what is draped under a lot of what we are doing in Jesus' name. And so, you know, you you start talking about Jesus, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. He says, life is not found in the abundance of possessions. And I, I can tell you, you, I mean, I'm sure where you are too. There's some some wealthy folks in your church, but yeah, you know, I've interacted with a lot of wealthy people who, who have no financial needs, but they've you know spiritual poverty. Maybe just a total crisis of meaning. And um, there's a lot of burdens that come with real wealth. And uh, so, yeah, we have to learn to pastor those people too, not to shame them. Um, some people are given a gift of making money. Romans 12 tells us if, you've got the, if you're called to be generous, be generous. So I think, um, yeah, that's one of the big ones that's hanging under the altar from my perspective. Well, it's interesting. You know, wealth is always challenging because no one thinks they're wealthy. There's always someone who has more than you have. And, you know, the reality is if you're listening to this podcast on, you know, your iPhone with internet access, you've probably got more wealth than a lot of people <laughs> have in the world. How do you, I mean, if you were to give someone, uh, these are the symptoms of, of, of worshiping mammon in your life, the way that you've defined it, how, how would I know that that's happening? Well, I mean, you've mentioned part of what I said. You know, the problem with entitlement, entitlement looks up and says, why don't I have more? Gratitude looks down and says, thank you, mm. and then tries to help other people. So a huge part of it is, is the heart. I think it was Kent Hughes who said, every, t- every time I give, like every time I give, I tear down the idol of mammon. Perpetual generosity is perpetual de-deification of money. And I think that's a that's a sort of like a, a mashup. It's not exactly what he said. It's putting some things together. But that's it. Generosity breaks the spirit of mammon, and sacrificial generosity, uh, where we it puts us in a posture of like a need and having to live by faith again. I think that's one of the things that does it more than anything. So, yeah, I've got no problem. I don't I don't think poverty is helpful, and uh, I certainly you know don't hate the American dream. I, I wish more people had access to it. Um, so to me, it's not about like, let's get as poor as we can. There's a lot of self-righteous poor people. I think the attitude is like, God, how do I steward what you've given me? I think stewardship is the ultimate motivation of, uh, for New Testament ethics. And yeah, I think it's just basically being generous. So there's two kinds of generosity, spontaneous generosity and this strategic generosity. You know, so it's like as God prompts you in the moment and then how do you build a lifestyle? that is uh, increasingly generous. We say in our church's giving gen- uh, generosity liturgy uh, that we want to increase in generosity until it can be said there's no needy among us mm. to increase in generosity. So, yeah, those, I think those are very small practices. And, um, you know, C.S. Lewis was asked how much, how much should you give, and it's like more than you want to. I think that's it. <laughs> Give until you're not comfortable. Uh, you know, it's interesting that you connected the mammon not not just to to wealth and greed, which I've heard. You, you know, you you connected it to Instagram and 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 our social appearance before other people. And you know, it, it makes me think that it's also interconnected with the idol of social acceptance. You know, having a lot and having possessions is a way to be accepted. Uh, but I also see social acceptance being a, a major idol that that people are resisting or need to resist if we want to move forward. And so I'm curious. I mean, New York City is a lot uh, farther ahead probably culturally than our city is. We'll probably be what New York City is in 10 years. <laughs> That's the way things tend to go. 
but I, I'm curious, how are you seeing Christians in New York uh, face the temptation to uh, want to be socially accepted in a time when Christians really aren't? Well, I think I, I want to make an important distinction. So I've, I've been in New York City for um, 16 years. I've pastored in Manhattan um, exclusively, you know, which is like sort of the center of power in New York. It's not the center of cool. And it's maybe not even the best borough, but it's sort of like the, the, the thing you think of, you know. Yeah. And it, it tends to attract the kind of people who are drawn to that or who have the capacities to function well on that, either in terms of gifting or talent. So when I first moved there, you, New York was like nowhere else. It was incredibly distinct. Local microcultures, stuff you got there that you couldn't get anywhere else. And I'm telling you, um, responding before I answer the question to your point of like 10 years ahead of, no, we are all lagging behind Gen Z. That's a fact. And that no city, cities do carry distinctives, but we now have sort of like a global monoculture. Huh. You know, kids, the phone has democratized culture. And so today, even the most elite kids in New York, yeah, they may be required to go to the opera with their parents. But they're going to be listening to, you know, whichever rapper's popular at the time, um, whichever little rapper is like doing their thing in the moment or whatever. Their, their, their culture has been completely flattened. And um, so the, the, I think we're actually all failing behind how do we reach Gen Z and mobile culture. Cities matter, that it's like the world has been flattened. And the sooner we figure that out and yeah. get on it, the better we'll be. Well, it's interesting. I mean, you, you moved to New York City, obviously, because you care about the West and you wanted to see renewal in the West. And I, I, when I read you talking about that, one of the thoughts I had was, well, the good news is you don't have to um, <laughs> move to New York City anymore to, to change the West because the West is now online. And if you want to reach people, that's actually where it starts. It's, it's happening on the Internet. The most compelling vision I've been given, I think. I mean, look, look there'll always need to be embodied presence. Like yeah. New York is a, an area with 22 million people, almost the population of Australia, where I'm from. So um, you'll always need God's people on the ground, modeling God's kingdom, embodying the good news, those sorts of things. But in terms of culture, which, you know, like New York is a part of a larger culture, and that culture has absolutely been democratized online. So um, the other reason to move to New York is because it's just great. <laughs> it's just fun. There's just, there's just great. There's just there's a lot of good stuff that, that I love about it. So, you know, you've got to have some sort of local pride. Yeah. So, that, so the first part is like, yeah, I think that's really important to, to acknowledge um, the, the potency of the moment we're in. One, one of my friends says, like, his vision is to raise up 100 digital Billy Grahams. Mm. You know, I've just started, like, how to following these, like, um, uh, TikTok evangelists. And some of them are doing, like, the best stuff ever. I'm like, this is it. This is the future. There will always be the present and there will always be the past and we have to honor those things. But these, these folks who got online and built a following, they're, they're into it. Um, the, the idol of acceptance is very, very hard. It is very, very hard to resist. It's very hard to resist everywhere. Would you, would you tell the story about the, the write-up that happened uh, on your church and, and, and how that impacted you? So that was the, the New York Times article. I think it's evangelical group sees NYC as incubator for planting churches was, I think, the subtitle of the article. Okay. So this was – it was actually very, very interesting. So this is when I was with Trinity Grace. We had planted five churches in five years, and we ended up planting 11 churches in 10 years. I mean, it was like 
it's pretty god something did god did something very extraordinary um 11 separate churches one family in the middle of new york city in a decade it was like the hand of god it was really amazing to be a part of yeah so five five years in we are the featured article for the like local section okay now this is 2010 or 11 i think and they embedded a reporter with us and so he's coming to our prayer meetings and i felt like in many ways it was like an absolute bait and switch you know like he's like he's on our side so we can get all like the, the stuff to make evangelicals look like idiots, like the photos they choose, uh-huh. like, you know, find the worst face in the crowd, you know, the most violent looking white person in the crowd. And it was those sorts of things. But when I moved there, it was very, very different power dynamic, sort of in that older world, not online world. I got mentored by Keller in 06, I think. And he'd really taught me about contextualization. And so I was like hyper obsessed with doing something that was credible and not dismissible in New York. And, you know, like evangelicals would come in and they'd do like God at the movies and, you know, we're going to talk about, you know, whatever. And I was just like, these people have, you know, like master's degrees in mathematics from MIT. They're not like looking for like Disney films on Sunday church. The world is full of evil and hard problems and they want like serious answers. So I'm working pretty hard to, to like give a credible account of the gospel. Yeah. But my desire for it to be credible overshadows my desire to be pleasing to Jesus subtly, slowly over time. And then the New York Times come out with that article, and it's a bad piece. And everyone's like, it could have been way worse. And I was like, you don't live here. So <laughs> anyway, they just wrote an article that basically made our church look very sophomoric, sort of like, you know, dumb outsiders awkwardly trying to navigate a sophisticated city in which they don't belong. And uh, anyway, so like the, that was one of the chances. So I remember being um, at the back of one of our church services in Chelsea, and it was just like it was just too too passionate. It was like too much. I remember just getting frustrated, thinking like this is not going to be credible, and I just felt the Holy Spirit slap me. Credible to who? Acceptable to who? Relevant to who? And it's one of those things where God says, if you make the approval of New York City the standard by which I can move in this church, this church is not going to work. And it just put me in deep repentance. And it definitely put me in one of those who cares what the New York Times thinks about our church sort of a spot. So it was very, very freeing. It doesn't mean you want to be, you know, we're obviously called to do it well, do it with generous respect and wisdom. But that need for the city to acknowledge me, I'm like, they will never like what I do. So I need to just put my head down and serve Jesus. And so a lot of times, when I was younger, I'm 44, when I was younger, it was all about being cool and relevant. You know what I mean? So youth group was relevant. Church was cool. We spent all of our time saying, like, we're church for people who don't do church, yeah. you know, and it's like, hey, I don't the know how to The magazine is relevant. Yeah, 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 all, all of those sorts of things. And I think some of that would, some of those were genuine attempts at the time, and a lot of it was just, like, trend chasing. Evangelical culture is two things. It's trends and then critique of trends. That's it. <laughs> and uh, so there was a lot of people on the front end of that trend. So yeah. We had a somewhat similar moment here in town. There's one of the largest documentary film festivals in the country happens in Columbia every year. And uh, we became partners with them years back. And, uh, you know, we, we got a lot of cultural capital out of that. There was actually a piece in the New York Times about this bizarre, you know, film festival with an evangelical church that supports them. And 
you know, I think a lot of people were a part of the crossing because it was cool. I mean, like, how cool is that? I get to follow Jesus and I can go to the, you know, liberal festival downtown and be one of the insiders. Uh, But we preached a sermon that uh, slayed a a sacred cow and it just decimated the relationship in a single Sunday. And and not because we said anything hateful, I don't think. Uh, But we, and I think as a congregation, have continued to be faced with this question of, if we're not socially accepted in, in our city, I mean, because before that there weren't people who said, I, I, I don't want to be associated with your church, but now it's very much the case. Yeah, we, we would not be associated with a church like that. And I'm, I'm watching more and more Christians who seem to be uh, deconstructing their faith in part because of this social acceptance problem. And so I, I just, again, I have to imagine that's a lot of people in, in your church or a lot of people that, that are in New York City. I mean, how do we resist the idol of self, self-acceptance? Well, I mean, part of it is that you, you have to know existentially that you're accepted by God. I mean, so like, it, like when, when there's a person whose acceptance that you desperately want and you get it, that is one of the most potent forces on planet Earth. Mm. So like I, I was very, very aware with both my son and my daughter. Like my daughter could meet some loser guy when she was 15 who was 19 who was like smoking weed and had a car and, you know, was from some, you know, outside of the city or whatever. And if she loved him, she, he, he would dictate the terms of her life. So it doesn't matter how much wisdom I had, love, care, time, whatever. If she valued his acceptance more than my acceptance, he would have dictated everything. And so that's why it's also very, very important to evaluate, like, is the, uh, are we after the right person's acceptance? Because mm. that, that is one of the most potent forces. The right acceptance means you can take on an empire, which is what Daniel proved. So to me, yeah, it's like making sure that we have the right vision of understanding how we're accepted by God, but then like feeling it. Like, so 1 John 3 says, oh, what manner of love the Father's lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And you've got to feel love has been lavished on you to handle the kind of rejection that we will face in our culture today. So I tell a lot of people how I do it. I spend my mornings enjoying the acceptance of God. It's like, what do you do? It's like I get up and I just marinate on God's word and I just read slowly for my own pleasure and delight. And I, I meditate on my certain future, the certain hope that I have. And I realize that just like we're talking about Bonhoeffer now and all the failures of his age and his faithfulness that 50 years from now, you know, my life will be over before I know it. And so how do I just remain faithful in his love? And I think of the first church father uh, that was martyred. But they were trying to get him to deny his faith. And he just says, well, he's been so good to me all these years. How can I? That's how I feel. He's been so good to me. And so, like, that's got to be so real to you. And when that is real to you, like, see, you know, psychologists say we get our sense of value from the person whose opinion we value the most. We get our sense of worth from the person whose opinion we value the most. Mm-hmm. And, again, it can't just be, like, theologically correct. Jesus is the true and better. The I am statements, you've got to feel it. The work is getting it into your spirit. And that's where I think a lot of people go wrong, is other things get in their spirits, even though their minds belong to God. And so I spend time like trying to cultivate that. Huh. I, I mean, I, I feel like we continue to circle around the exact same topics, which is that we need these things in our life that form us and shape us so that we can enjoy that acceptance and live in that acceptance. Yes. And if you don't, you, you know, you're, you're, you're left to the whims of culture or that coworker you care about or whoever yes. it is. Yeah, very fragile. A lot of fragile identities out there. Yeah. <laughs> 
We'll be back to our episode really quick. Look, if you're enjoying the content in here, you want to sign up for our newsletter. We like to write little articles every week that are kind of based on our podcast, but they really take one idea that we don't spend a lot of time talking about and expand them. Not to a super long article, but to an article you could read in 10 minutes and get a good little nugget out of that's going to help you think about what's happening in our world in a more Jesus-centered way. So make sure to go to choosetruthovertribe.com and subscribe to our newsletter. While we're on the topic of, of idols and thinking through the idols that are you know creeping through the Western church, I, another one that I find interesting, we had uh, Thaddeus Williams on the show uh, a while back, and, and he said that he sees three idols. He said the self, the state, and social acceptance. So we've talked about social acceptance, but I'm curious. I think that the self is another major idol that is uh, winning places in people's heart. And you know, when I say the worship of the self, I mean worshiping self-expression and personal authenticity as the highest good, as the highest possible good in life. And um, I, I think a lot of people think that worshiping the self just means being a selfish person. <laughs> and that's not precisely what, what I mean when I say, but I, I'm curious, how, how do you think in the West people have begun to worship the self more and more? Well, I mean, I mean, how have we done it? We've, so here, number one, let's acknowledge this. We're, we're in a major radical experiment that no society has undertaken in human history. That's what modern Western culture has become. And it basically says there are no external norms that are life-giving whatsoever. And the only true way of flourishing is expressing the internal and then modifying the external to match it. Now, there's never been a human society that's valued that. All societies have agreed that in some way, shape, or form, there are universal ethics, values, practices, stories, institutions rites of passage and pathways that form you into a person who can live for the common good. And now we have, and I mean, Alan Mann writes about this uh, in Atonement for a Similar Society. He uses the phrase project self. Modern society is a blank canvas of self-expression and anybody who ex- impedes full self-expression is, is uh, oppressing me. And so that, that's basically the way it is. We've reversed what almost all societies in history have done and we've said the internal must dominate Every individual's internal reality is the ultimate reality. And you're saying internal reality, not eternal reality. Yes, and we're going to start bumping into actual reality soon, and we're just going to see it's not going to work. So we're seeing this in transgender sports right now. You know, it's like we're we're sort of like you can't invent, you can't simply by saying I'm something else become something else. Now, this is not my comment on people who struggle with gender dysphoria. Uh, I think that is like a very, very real issue that must be treated with like compassion and tenderness. But I'm talking specifically about a way that society exists with some kind of reality and what we're doing to it doesn't fit. And I think maybe what we'll end up doing is like having a category for trans athletes, which I think is maybe the way forward in our society, but that's a way longer discussion. But I'm just saying, we're starting to bump into these things that don't quite work. And we're starting to get resistance because the resistance before was like, hey man, you do you, I'll do me. But now we're realizing the consequences institutionally and culturally, if you do you and I do me, actually don't build a culture. They don't build a society. You can't build a social contract that people participate in that's you do you and I do me. And I think the worst thing that Christians can do in response to all of this chaos is use fear-mongering and self-protection as the antidote to it. Hmm. 
the way forward is to embody a better reality and to lovingly to, to make the church a, a more compelling counterculture. So again, we're doing the opposite thing. We are assuming the world should become like the church rather than the church becoming like what Jesus intended it to be. I love that. And that, that's a profound thought. It also seems to me that there are lots of people in the church who are trying to baptize uh, this message of the self as an unalloyed good that I should embrace. You know, I, I hear a lot of talk about authenticity. I, I hear a lot of talk about self-care and I hear the good and the bad in those things, you know, but even as we're talking, I think some people, when, when we discuss Sabbath or fasting, that to them is say, oh, that's Christian self-care. And I'm curious, I mean, w- w- would, you, would, you, would you frame it that way? Yeah, the problem with that is like, no, it's like, that's the teachings of Jesus. Stop trying to shove your cultural framework over the top of it. I mean, Jesus says, like, when you fast, when you fast. I mean, these are like, so you always have to reject the frame. You always have to question and examine the frame that's being put over the teaching. You've got to start with theology and then move out into sociology and the other practices. If you reverse that, it's just going to be a a very real challenge. So I'm sensitive to that because I continually meet people who have been harmed by toxic forms of religion. And basically what they're saying is like, hey, this thing that was meant to be life just caused death in me. And there's people who are like genuinely reacting to abuse and trauma inside the church. And they need care. Like they're, they're gentle, they're wounded souls. And they need that ministry of Jesus. They need, they need the smoldering wick and, the, and the, the broken reed. They need that kind of ministry and mercy. It's, it can be definitely a season in their life that the New Testament talks about being considerate to the weaker brother, not using your rights for the sake of that. And ultimately, the reason you do that is out of love. And so love is the ethic that makes space for the weaker brother. The problem is, is then when you get the weaker, like when you never have any strength in the church, and it's only weaker brothers, and the church avoids its mission and sort of calling. And so I think the great challenge is, to, you know, to hold things in tension. I do laugh a little bit. I, I'm, I live a, um, I don't live a balanced life by any means, but I live a, what I would describe as a biblically rhythmic life. So I work a lot of hours. No one will ever accuse me of being lazy. Strong work ethic that I got from working in a, a butcher shop, you know, formed in me at a very young age. And I want to model a full heart with integrity for the long haul. My goal is just to finish well. But I do see, like, some people in their early 20s who actually, like, haven't really worked yet. And they're like, I'm taking a sabbatical. I'm like, you may not be ready for a sabbatical. Like, well, what a sabbatical is supposed to do. Like, the need for the sabbatical may not have been formed in you yet where you appreciate what it's actually designed to do. And so, again, but I would tell you this, I would, I would take rested young people over burned out young people, but I think we've got to find a way to get that right. You know? Again, action, reaction, and I just want to shove the teachings of Jesus in the middle in a disruptive way and say, let's start there. You know? I, I think one of the things that I, I wrestle with when I hear some of the practices you're talked about discussed as being self-care is, is precisely that they 
tend to make you, when you are taking Sabbath, when you're resting, when you're praying, they tend to orient you around yourself. In other words, it becomes about me feeling a certain way or having a certain experience instead of orienting those things around Jesus and around drawing near to God and hearing him and connecting with him. And so I would, I will admit on the one hand, yes, this is a good thing for you. (laughs) If you want to take care of yourself, this would be a good idea for you to embrace in your life. But on the other side, is, is that, is that the right orientation? Is is that why you're doing it? And if you have the wrong orientation, does it take away its healing power? Yeah. I mean, I think I would say, um, if your Sabbath is about you, you're not doing the Sabbath, you're having a day off. There's nothing wrong with a good day off, mate. A day, a good day off is great, but the Sabbath is oriented around God. The Sabbath is the practice of the sovereignty of God. And, you know, like we get a lot out of rightly aligning ourselves with who God is or whatever, but it is not, it's not just a day for glorying in the self. I mean, the essence, you know, I mean, it was Satan who's like, let I, let I. I've got a chapter in my last book um, called The Burden is Light on pride, you know, and people forget that Satanism is the worship of self. It's not the worship of Satan. And so when you look at what Anton LaVey taught in the founding of the Church of Satan, he's like, we don't, we don't worship the devil. We worship the person, the archetype of rebellion against the tyranny of God that reasserts itself and its own desires. And it's like the Satanism is worship of the self. And uh, so you can definitely, you know, somewhere between an unhealthy sense of self, sort of like false humility and, and, and pride is like what the Bible teaches, which is a union, the true self renewed in the image of creator. Um, in in union with Christ, and that's what we should be cultivating and exploring, how that works itself out. And but I'll say this: like, hey man, don't beat yourself up. Like, set, like, keep working at this. It's the art of living. It's not technique. It takes time to figure this out: who you really are and how you work. And different seasons of our lives dictate how we respond and what margins available. It's like the goal is to do it in a way that ultimately leads to it, fullness of heart and the glory of God. I'm. Curious to get your thoughts on, on, I think, something related to this. Again, on the idea of how uh, worship of the self might creep into the church. You know, I've noticed recently uh, two things that I think are interrelated. One is the growth of uh, kind of the Christian personality movement, you know, that you you need to understand your, whether it's your Enneagram or your Myers-Briggs. And and I'm fine with those things. I'm not one of those people who gets on Twitter and starts yelling at people about uh, knowing their Enneagram number. Uh, but the other one is I hear a lot of people talking about authenticity and transparency. Like you just need to be the real you, perfectly authentic, perfectly transparent, perfectly real to yourself. That's what God wants. And those things tend to merge together, you know, that uh, my personality type is the real me and that's who I need to be. I, I, I'm just standing up. I'm just curious. I mean, do, do, you, do you know your personality type? Do, has that been something that you found spiritually helpful? How, how should we think through this? Yeah, man. I mean, I've done every test you can do. I wish people talked about spiritual gifts more than they talked about Enneagram. You know, I know the Enneagram has like a cult background. I, I just met with someone who's like a PhD in psychology. And he just used the Enneagram the whole time. And I was like, dude, you understand. Like, you, you know that the, the, the Enneagram has like very little scientific backing. And that it's the big five test. That's where all the research is that's helpful. But like the big five traits aren't as like sexy, you know, it's like, oh, I'm low on conscientiousness. It like doesn't flow. It's not as, doesn't work. I've often thought that the Enneagram is the thing that you talked about, that we do need external things to shape us. And what I find is people discover their Enneagram and then like I wait three years if they're really into it, they become their Enneagram number that they thought they were. Yeah. I mean, but anyway, my point is like he used the Enneagram all the time. Even he goes, there's just some uncanny explanatory power about it. These are all tools. And we should be grateful we live in a time of history where we can have this much self-awareness. The question is, what do you do with it? 
And what I hate is like, so I'm a four with a three wing, almost indistinguishable. So I'm either really special and driven or I'm really driven to be special. Okay. So I don't know how that works itself out, <laughs> but you can't reduce the complexity of my life and heart to that number. So I get frustrated mm-hmm. when people use it dismissively. Well, you're a four with a three wing. And I'm like, you know, that's not all I am, you know, but I, I understand, I understand the need for it. And, um, sort of where it comes from and how people think about that. So I, I got I got mercy on it. I mean, it's a, you know, it's a tool. Use the tool properly and, you know, mm-hmm. use the needed tool. That is not the only tool. So That's great. That's great. Um, you know, I, I've, I've heard you speak a lot about uh, renewal and uh, how you're seeing renewal in the West, which I, I, I find really interesting. You know, we've had a number of different... Uh, interviewees on here. And it's been a theme I've heard people talk about. Uh, But the people who I've heard talk about it probably uh, don't see eye to eye with you on much. (laughs) Uh, So one person that comes to mind is we we had a Greg Locke on the podcast and uh, he's famously uh, done and said some things that I find to be pretty disturbing, uh, but he talks constantly about a great awakening happening. Now for him, it's just kind of uh, God and country, Christian libertarian, civil religion, ceremonial deism thing. And then on the other side, we had David Gushy on the show, who's a progressive Christian, and uh, he also sees some sort of renewal happening uh, inside of the church. And, um, you know, he, he though sees it as people leaving the church and kind of, uh, casting off the Bible and just going back to some maybe basic Jesus things and having uh, theology and ethics that line up with a you know far left progressive agenda. But he says, this is happening in, in the millions right now. There's this huge renewal. And then you're talking about renewal. You start feeling like it's hype almost. Oh, I was going to say, it's not happening by the millions. Um, not, not to, I mean, it is statistically, but it's a blip in terms of what's happening in global Christianity. Mm. Global Christianity is not like white progressives abandoning the Bible and embracing leftist politics and ethics. That is like, that is like <laughs> yeah. the level of arrogance to assume that that is the future of Christianity is staggering to me. Do you know what I mean? You want to talk about centering. That's the most arrogant mm-hmm. centering I can think of. The future is, you know, like the, the typical Christian in the world right now is a black woman in the, third, in the emerging world. I mean, so... The future of the church is, you know, it's, 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 again, it's white people that cannot let go of their ideological colonization with all of their privilege who have to push their agenda onto the global poor, and this time they're just doing it through faith. And, you know, and so I don't have a lot of patience for that. I think they're, they're doing the very thing. Now, I do have patience for people who've been chewed up and spat out yeah. by a fundamentalist, hypocritical church and Jesus has very, very strong things to say about that. So, you know, when we're talking about renewal, I mean, I, th- I think I'm just talking about Jesus' desire to, to manifest his heart through his people. And uh, yeah, there's normally a pruning. There's normally like an awareness. Uh, and I think it's very, very different in different places in the church of Revelation. Jesus says different things to every church. Mm. And so, you know, I don't, in terms of like, there's going to be a great awakening there is a great awakening happening right now. Look at Africa in the last hundred years. Look at the repositioning of the church to the global south. We've seen the most extraordinary Jesus movement in the last hundred years. Absolutely breathtaking. In the West, I think, you know, you read earlier, I'm trying to seek and cultivate renewal because we're in one of the places where the church is just, it is, it's been so caught up in cultural ideologies. And I'm just trying to like, yeah, have some sort of like humble reform movement towards what, you know, more of what Jesus had in mind. Based on his invitations, like if you repent, 
this is always this is a critique, but it's an invitation to life. And I'm trying to like do a generous and sincere critique with a with a passion that appeals to life. Well, John, that's a great note to end on. I really appreciate you taking the time to come on our show. Uh, one thing I like to ask our guests to do uh, is to pray for audience. And I heard you on a different interview say that uh, people uh, aren't being blessed enough. So, so maybe you could pray a little benediction for everyone who's listening. Yeah, sure. So wherever wherever you're listening to this, just just receive this as God's heart towards you. May the love of God and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the presence of the Holy Spirit be with you always. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you found this podcast helpful, make sure to subscribe and leave a review. And make sure it's at least five stars. Stop. No, just be honest. Reviews help other people find us. <laughs> okay, okay. At the very least, you can share today's episode. Maybe put it on your social, your favorite text chain. And if you didn't like this episode, awesome. Tell us why you disagree on Twitter, at truthovertribe underscore. We might even share your thoughts in an upcoming newsletter.